Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. Turkey is in crisis. A number of terrorist attacks in recent weeks has rattled Turkish society. There is a persistent and ongoing crackdown on civil society, and President Erdogan is engineering constitutional changes to further consolidate power. On the line with me to discuss recent events in Turkey and offer some deeper context into the political situation and future of U.S.-Turkey relations is Elmira Bayrasli. She is an author and co-founder of Foreign Policy Interrupted, which seeks to amplify the voices of women in foreign policy debates, and she was also my guest in episode number 81. I learned a great deal from this conversation and suspect you will as well. Turkey is always one of the most fascinating countries in terms of international relations. Its geographic position, its outlook is so profoundly important to events in the Middle East and in Europe. It is, of course, a NATO ally. So learning more about what makes Turkey tick is very important to learning more about how the world works. Before we begin an announcement, on January 19th at 7 p.m., I will be hosting a live taping of the podcast at the University of Chicago with former UN Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad. If you're in Chicago and want to attend in person, please send me an email via the contact page on globaldispatchespodcast.com. This is a ticketed event, and the organizers have reserved tickets for my most loyal listeners. So if you are interested, send me an email and I will send you the registration info. Also, a couple of fun announcements. So this is a time of transition in DC and beyond. And as it happens, a number of my previous guests are into some interesting things. Tom Perriello, my guest from last month, currently serves as President Obama's special envoy to the Great Lakes region of Africa, announced that he's running for governor of Virginia. Meanwhile, Raj Shah, another former podcast guest, is the former USAID administrator, was recently named the head of the Rockefeller Foundation. And finally, my friend, the journalist Anna Therese Day, was named as one of Forbes 30 Under 30. So congrats to all. Call it the Global Dispatches bump. I'm glad to see that so many guests are up to so many fascinating, interesting, and great things. And now here is Elmira Bayrasli. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. proposal before the Turkish parliament to change the constitution in the, uh, the 1980 constitution, which is actually very important to point out. Um, the 1980 constitution was one that the military had drafted up after they overthrew the democratically elected government um, and imposed martial law on the country. 
And the proposal before the Turkish parliament now is to actually reform that, which needs to be reformed. So justifiably so, I think that the proposal is is a valid one. However, the proposal that Erdogan is pushing for is one in which parliament would have less powers and more power would be put into the executive presidency, into his very own hands. And this is very problematic in Turkey for a number of different reasons. I think we've seen Turkey struggle over the past couple of years, certainly in 2013 when the Gezi riots in June had erupted and there were all these large-scale protests against the government um, then. And the very strong-handed clampdown that Erdogan reacted to those those protests with, with, with gassing, um, protesters and unleashing water cannons and wide and widespread arrests. Um, and since then, the political and social civil situation in Turkey has really gone downhill. Mm-hmm. And I think why that's very problematic is that we've seen the weakening of of Turkey in and of itself. And this is really kind of where it comes in, where you you start to see how even though Turkey over the last decade plus started to become a darling in, in around the world, it really fundamentally is still a very weak country. And this is why the proposal to change the constitution to give more powers to the president is very troubling. So what kind of powers would be conferred to the presidency? So essentially the um, po- policymaking powers, um, the ability to pass legislation would Right now, it rests with with Parliament, and it has to be passed with a majority in Parliament. And like many parliamentary systems in Turkey, um, you have, even though there is a single majority rule in Turkey in Turkey today, um, they still need to actually confer with other parliamentarians um, and debate issues, whether it's legislation or 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 policies in Turkey. They still need a they need to be discussed in Parliament. And essentially what this proposal would be is that the president would be able to pass legislation and policies without any debate and without any, any, um, without essentially without any checks and balances. So just by decree. Yes. And I've also seen that it theoretically could extend his time as president until 2029. Well, currently, um, he was elected into um, into power in 2014, and um, presidents serve for an eight-year period. And so, um, I, I haven't worked out the math on that, but that sound that seems to sound right. But I I don't think one of the proposals is to extend his his time in power. Um, what seems, I suppose, interesting is that you know when you look at Erdogan's kind of political history, you know he he came to power in in the early mid 2000s as prime minister, right? And then uh, when he was term limited out of being prime minister, he became president, which until that point was not a powerful position. But now since he's become president, as you said, in, in 2014, um, you know, it, it, it's becoming increasingly the locus of political power in the country, right? Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, there was many questions about, you know, what he would do. Um, you know, when his predecessor before that, Abdullah Gül, was the president, there was a lot of controversy about, you know, what role would Abdullah Gül play. Um, but Gül really respected the kind of ceremonial position that the Turkish president plays. 
Um, but since taking over the presidency, um, Erdogan has really kind of um, really swung that power over. And so, I mean, if you ask anyone around the world right now who the Turkish prime minister is, I think many people, even at the highest levels of government, would struggle to actually name who that person is. Who is um, it? Who is it? <laughs> Benali Yildirim. <laughs> okay, well, you know. You're the expert. <laughs> um, but I think a lot of people would struggle to actually identify um, Mr. Yildirim as, as Turkey's prime minister and as the person who is actually in charge of day-to-day -day operations and management of the government. So, I mean, it, it seems like almost like a, a really classic strongman move, right, to um, find legal ways, legal maneuvering, uh, to keep one in power, to change roles of various positions, to empower the position you're in. I mean, it's what Vladimir Putin did. It's sort of a, a classic, um, kind of strongman move for people who still want to, um, express the trappings of democracy, uh, to, to confer some degree of legitimacy on them, but yet want to as much, amass as much power as, as possible. Well, I mean, you know, I think, you know, the, this word democracy in Turkey, I think it's, it's you know, Turkey's always had a very fragile democracy. And certainly it's always had, you know, for a very long time, it's had, you know, open elections, um, certainly transparent, open and accountable elections. But, you know, democracy is not limited to elections. And this is what we're seeing now. And I think where, where the fragility comes in is the ability of people to be able to push back and question power and authority, and certainly the question of checks and balances. And right now, what the, in, on the path that Erdogan is going on, there's very limited checks and balances. He has purged the judiciary and filled those positions in into the Turkish judicial system with which let legislators and judges that favor him and his po political his political leanings. Um, and that's really that's that's not good in a democracy um, when other voices are being drowned out and there's not very big representation of whether it's minorities or dissenting views. Uh, and can you talk a, a bit more about those purges? So it, it seems that the the biggest purges came after last year's uh, failed coup attempt. Uh, but after every um, sort of major terrorist attack, there seems to be even more purging, even more clampdown on civil society, even more arresting of of people who are deemed one way or another to be political opponents of of Erdogan. You know, I think I think we need to put we need to actually acknowledge a couple of things here. One, I think the coup attempt on July 15th of 2016 was um, one in which deserved a very forceful reaction. I think the, the attempt to overthrow a democratically gov elected government anywhere deserves a forceful response. Um, that is unacceptable under any, any, any circumstance. Um, one can criticize um, Type Erdogan and and the AKP leadership, but the but the reality is they are they are the legitimate government of the Turkish people. I think it's also right to actually question the extent to which um, the government has responded because I think that they have overplayed their hand. Um, they are blaming a a cleric, a self um, a cleric who lives here in the United States in Pennsylvania in self imposed exile, Fethullah Gulen as orchestrating this coup, um, you know, that, that remains to be seen. I mean, certainly the evidence does point to that. Um, they still haven't really found the perpetrators, but now anybody, you know, who seems supposedly against the government is being blamed 
as a supporter of Gulenist, and they're being purged from their positions in, in, in public service. And why this is very problematic, it's not even just in day-to-day running of government, but as we've seen in the past couple of months, we've seen a number of terrorist attacks in Turkey. Certainly the terrorist attack in Besiktas in December was one where you had very um, inexperienced policemen approaching a car um, and mishandling the situation, and you can see the you know the effects of having you know experienced public officials purged out of government and having very you know um, you know not qualified, very green individuals having to having to deal with these things. It's, it becomes a very dangerous circumstance. So, like the functioning of the Turkish state is undermined when you're purging all these experienced people with potential loose ties to 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 Gulen. Can can you talk a little bit more about Gulen? You know, it, it seems that um, in the coming year, this may become a, a true crisis point between Turkish and American relations. You know. Um, uh, the government of Turkey has for years been seeking the extradition of Gulen. Uh, the uh, Obama administration has has rebuffed these calls, but one doesn't really know how the Trump administration might play its hand. Uh, yeah, and that is it, and that is a question to be seen. Um, you know, the the Trump administration certainly has indicated that it it you know is open to uh, try to um, work with the Erdogan government. Um, and Trump's selected national security advisor, Michael Flynn, um, has said that, you know, the, that Gulen is a dangerous person and that um, we should actually take a considerable look at what the role of, of the preacher was in, in the Turkish coup attempt. Um, that being said, it's very unclear about what, what the Trump administration will do on on Gulen, um, whether they will extradite him back to Turkey, um, and what course the um, Trump administration will take vis-a-vis Turkey. Um, I think we have to take a look at two different things here. On domestic matters, Trump has been very vocal about, you know, putting a ban on Muslims, creating a registry, um, you know, and, and really coming down hard on 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 the extremism growing out of the in the Middle East. Um, on the other hand, he has been, you know, making conciliatory gestures clearly to Russia and trying to try to engage Russia and work with them on the Syrian matter. Um, and now that Turkey and Russia are, are are allied again and working together to solve the Syrian matter, it remains to be seen what, what approach the Trump administration will take on Turkey. Um, I, I want to get back to that, but can you talk a little bit more about Gulen himself? Like, how did he become seemingly public enemy number one in the eyes of, of Erdogan? Well, um, I think back in the 1990s, Erdogan and Gulen allied themselves, um, and and one of the reasons that the AKP became so popular was because of a lot of Gulen supporters did support Erdogan and the AKP. Um, Gulen um, was a very popular preacher in Turkey, um, and he actually left the he left the country under the threat of the Turkish military trying to arrest him on treason charges. Um, and he came here to the United States, and he's been living in Pennsylvania in the Poconos since since then. Um, there, and as the Erdogan government um, kind of you know gained in power, and as things went on, I think there was that fissure where um, Erdogan wanted to do his own thing, 
and the Gulenists wanted to do and go in another direction. And you really start to see the fissures during the Mar- the Mar- Marvi Marmara incident, where the Israelis um, boarded the Turkish ferry that was going into deliver um, relief supplies into into Palestinian territories. Mm-hmm. This was and this it, was like in 2012, I believe, and it was. Uh, no, I think it was actually earlier than that. I think 2010. it was in 2010. Yeah, that's right, 2010. And it, it, was was... 20, it was May of 2010. It was Memorial Week, Day weekend of 2010. And um, Israeli soldiers boarded this Turkish ferry, and a number of individuals were killed, including an American citizen, a mm-hmm. Turkish-American citizen. Um, and the Turkish government reacted, you know, with re- recalling its ambassador and cutting off diplomatic relations and demanding an apology. Um, the Gulenists actually took a much more conciliatory approach and talked about how Israel is a friend of Turkey and how, you know, we have to work with the Israelis. And I think you start to see the very hmm. first fissures there. Um, I think it was then after in 2013 and the Gezi Park riots where you really start to see where the two start to have um, really disagreements and then eventually become enemies. Um, when the Gezi Park riots, as I mentioned early on in, um, in our discussion, you know, a bunch of people, the government wanted to close down Gezi Park, which is a park right in Taksim Square, which is um, the main square in Istanbul. Uh, Turkey's financial center, and as as many people who visited Istanbul have seen, the the city has really developed commercially. There's lots of shopping malls, there's lots of buildings, but there's very little green space left. And Gezi Park is one of the very few green spaces left in Turkey. And a bunch of environmentalists were protesting the raising of the park to build a shopping mall. Well, the government decided that it was going to bring in tanks and um, tear gas. Um, these protesters and the reaction to that just heightened it where protests broke out all over the country. And again, I think the Gulenists and Fethullah Gulen himself really kind of called for more calm and for a reasonable approach with the protesters. And this angered Erdogan. And and you start to see the fissures there. Um, and I think the Gulenists also then where the break really came was at the end of, and at the end of that year, a number of surreptitiously recorded phone calls between Erdogan and Hassan talking about, um, you know, hundreds and millions of dollars and and where they are in the, in their homes, in their respective homes, were released on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And many people believe that the Gulenists are the ones responsible for leaking those those phone calls to actually show how corrupt, allegedly corrupt, the Erdogan government was. And so that's where you really see the break between Erdogan and, and Gulen. Is it almost like a very convenient um, target for a conspiracy theory that, you know, every, you know, every, every opponent is somehow tied to this Gulenist movement. You know, the conspiracy just runs so deep. It's, it's like impossible to disprove. Oh, I mean, it's, you know, certainly I think, I think there's a legitimate reason for any government or any individual to actually look at, you know, all causes and, and, kind of all angles, but I think the way that, that this current government has approached it has, has really kind of just gone off the charts where conspiracy theories just run rampant and you don't really know what's true anymore. I mean, we were talking about fake news having a role in our November presidential elections. Um, I think with these conspiracy theories that the government itself gets behind, it's very hard for individuals to actually discern what is what is legitimate, what is true. 
um, and what is false. And I think it just creates, creates an atmosphere of chaos and confusion, and it's just very bad for stability in and of itself. And it's a convenient pretext in which to crack down on political opponents. It is, unfortunately. Um, so in, in recent weeks, there has been a, you know, a spate of, of terrorist uh, attacks. Um, how has that uh, affected uh, Turkish politics? Well, I think um, certainly setting Turkish politics aside, I think Turks um, in general um, have been shaken. Um, certainly, Turks are not any, they're not strangers to um, bombings that that's happened. You know, it, we've seen that happen in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s when Turkey was having its war with the um, Kurdish terrorist group, the, the PKK. Um, that died down in the in the 90s and certainly in, in early 2000s, um, and Turkey started to become you know this this big economic growth engine, and Istanbul became one of the global hotspots, very cosmopolitan, um, one of the you know go-to destinations in in Europe, um, and. So Turks are very familiar with it, and so when you have one or two incidents, it doesn't really rattle them. I think the, at, at the frequency that they are happening and the places that they are happening, I think it is starting to really weigh down on on everyday Turks and their ability to actually function and believe in their own security. I think that the shooting at the Reina nightclub was one in which um, Turks, I think particularly secular Turks, um, upper class Turks are really very worried about their own lifestyle becoming under threat. Um, and this is one in which the government, um, it's a problem for the government because on the one hand, I think fear is something that plays into Erdogan's hands. And the more fear you have, the more people seek a strong man. And where you have, um, you know, where you have this instability, people are going to support the government a little more. But I think the government is running into a problem where you start, you're starting to see um, where there's instability, investors are also starting to run away. And you can see that with the freefall of the Turkish lira. The Turkish lira has hit an all-time high of um, four lira to the dollar. Um, it's been in a free fall all week, and investors are fleeing the country. I mean, investments are down, tourism is down, um, and the Turkish economy is really running into a problem. And so on the one hand, I think the Erdogan government wants to, you know, create this image of, you know, it's going to be the protector and the security of of the Turkish people. But on the other hand, you know, with the economy kind of running into many different problems, it's going to be hard for the, I think, on a number of different fronts for the government to actually get everything under control. Um, so I, I wanted to go back to the the question of what the future lies for, for the U.S.-Turkey relationship. But also, uh, as you mentioned earlier, um, so we are speaking on Tuesday, January 10th, and, and I think yesterday or even today, um, for the first time, Turkey and Russia launched some very joint military operations targeting common enemies in Syria. And that, you know, is expected to, uh, foretell a closer and more enduring military uh, alliance. And I I'm wondering, um, one sort of what that means for Turkey's involvement in, uh, Syria and, and two, what that may, you know, portend for U.S.-Turkish uh, relations? 
Um, those uh, that actually started yesterday, the mm. the Russian Turkish um, incursions, and um, in the short term, I think you know they're going to achieve their ends. I think the question becomes what, what happens in the longer term. Um, we have to take a look, and you know Russia and Turkey are now allied on the issue of Syria, except their longer term goals are not aligned. And in in the longer term, you know the Russians really are very anti-ISIS, but they're not necessarily anti-Kurdish. And they are very pro-Assad. And in Turkey, um, Erdogan has for a very long time been a proponent of the removal of, of Assad and really very supportive of the, the anti-Assad fighters, um, which is one of the reasons that you're starting to see a very big problem along the Turkish border with, with a lot of these extremists. Um, also, the the Erdogan government is very against the Kurds and a strong strong Kurdish um, fight against the ISIS fighters, um, and this is where actually we're going to see in the longer term Russia and Turkey. I, I can't see how they're actually going to keep collaborating on this, and this has been one of the very big sticking points in why the Syria quagmire has been just one that's been so hard to solve because there are so many different groups involved in it and so many different, you know, people are for the Kurds and people are for, you know, against the Kurds. And I think it's just, it's one in which I don't think you're going to get either Turkey, Iran, Russia, or the United States to actually come to an agreement on. Um, and, and for the future of the U.S.-Turkish relationship, I mean, it, it seems that at least in disposition, Erdogan and Trump may share a sort of similar outlook on on the world. Um, I, I think they don't, I think they share a similar um, personality. I don't, I mean, I think there's similar outlook in the sense that they, they believe that you know, only they have the the right vision of the world. I think. Look, I think. You know, I'm not. I'm certainly not a Russia expert, but it seems to me that that Vladimir Putin sees himself as you know, kind of the hero of the Russians, and you know, his whole mission is to make Russia great again. Um, and certainly, Erdogan certainly sees himself as bringing Turkey back to the glory of the Ottoman Empire and bringing respect and you know this greatness back to Tur- to to Turkey again. And so, you know, I think these these similar attitudes of of what leadership and power mean, you know, may be similar. But I think it's a recipe for great instability in that part of the world. Uh, well, Elmira, thank you so much for your time. This was helpful. Thanks, Mark. It's so complicated, I must say. There's there's like any number of, of other issues we could be talking about, European integration or, uh, you know, any or the civil military relations in Turkey. But I, I feel like this conversation could, could go on forever because, uh, I mean, Turkey is to me just endlessly fascinating and endlessly complicated. It is, and it's a beautiful country. And I have to say it breaks my heart to see what's happening there. All right. Thank you all for listening. And again, if you are in Chicago and want to attend a live taping of the podcast with Zalme Khalilzad, send me an email and I will hook you up with some tickets. All right. See you soon. Bye.